Um, Hebrews chapter 1 um, is where we're going to be at today as we start going through the actual book of Hebrews. Last week, as I introduced the book, um, we got uh, some of the details about um, who the letter was written to. We know it was written to Jewish believers, those who were struggling um, with continuing on in their faith. They were being tempted to uh, abandon Jesus Christ and Christianity and go back to Judaism and the Mosaic um, laws and the Old Covenant. And, and um, the author of Hebrews was concerned for them, and so he writes this letter to them and encouraging them to continue on to grow into spiritual maturity, to um, press into that relationship they had with Jesus Christ, even though there was great difficulties and temptations and, and other forces that were, were weighing on them to, to, to give up Christ. And um, <clears throat> as it was presented maybe as a better way for them. But yet, uh, when we looked at the introduction last week, by the way, if you weren't here and you want to look back on that, if you go to the YouTube channel, and you can get there through the link on the website, LS Calvary. Org. You can link to it or go to the Facebook one. Either one will get you to the introduction. So, um, But if you remember from last week's introduction, or if you have read the book of Hebrews in preparation for our study, like I encourage you to do so, um, you'll know that this book ultimately can be summarized as a book of better things. Better things as it illustrates through many comparative examples, contrasts, um, uh, comparative contrast and, and illustrations of contrast, really it, it gives us this um, a better way to hear from God, a better way to please God, and ultimately, um, more importantly, a better way by which man can now have fellowship with God. And it's also a letter that contains some sharply worded warnings, because in addition to saying, hey, this is the the, the way we should continue, and these are the reasons for why we should continue. The author tells us reasons for, uh, or gives us examples or warnings and encouragements for what happens when we don't, what waits for us if we do walk away from this relationship that we have with Jesus. And um, in that, um, there's five, and we'll be going through those and highlighting these things, but they're stern warnings. They're there are warnings that we should be paying attention to in our own lives um, because it's a scary thing to, to be found in the hands of the living God, the Bible says, when you're standing there all on your own without Jesus Christ representing you and interceding for you and, and, and um, having been covered in his blood and the work that he's done. So as we begin chapter 1, <clears throat> what we'll see is that the case is being made for Jesus as the catalyst or as the vehicle for this better way. So there's a better way, but how is it made available to us? Who ushers it in? Who brings it in? Of course, it's Jesus Christ. And that's where this book begins. And in doing so, this better way is established by simply saying that Jesus is superior. Superior in every way. And the first three verses of this chapter introduce to us the superiority of Jesus. It details it with seven Seven statements that we're going to read here in these first verses. And we're going to pray as we begin. We pray for the other churches in the community like we do on a regular basis here. Um, we want to pray uh, on our list today is uh, Grandview Christian Church. Pastor there is uh, Pastor Todd. And um, uh, you guys may know people that go there. I know people, lots of people who call that their church home as well. And 
it's a, it's a wonderful church. So let's pray for our time and pray for them together. Father, thank you for this time where we get to be together and join in fellowship under the banner of Jesus Christ and um, to study your word, to worship you, um, Lord, to be encouraged and to be instructed. And I pray, God, that the time that we have together would be fruitful in these ways. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be turned towards you. Lord, that ultimately we would see our need to continue to <clears throat> put you first, to not allow anything else to creep in as we are deceived or, or tricked or just even led, led astray by our own um, sinfulness, Lord, to think that there's something better, that there's a better way apart from you for us out there that this world has to offer. And we pray for our brothers and sisters at the Grandview Christian Church, Lord. I pray for Pastor Todd today. Lord, as they're gathering together, and as they're worshiping and studying your word and having fellowship, I pray, God, that they would be encouraged, they'd be strengthened by the power and might of your Holy Spirit, Lord, for the work and the life that you've called them to. And Lord, I pray that same thing for us, that in, in you may we find our strength. In you, Lord, may we find our purpose. And may your Holy Spirit, may the Holy Spirit, Lord, um, teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. Begins with the word God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, verse 2, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has pointed error of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in verse 4, the transition verse, having established these, these statements of truth of, of, of the person of Jesus Christ, the author says, he, having Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained more a more excellent name than they. And Father, again, have your will, have your way. Um, may you be glorified. May we be instructed. And Lord, may we um, be blessed. I pray you would bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, in these first verses is where we find these seven statements that we just read. And, and they're contained in um, the first two of these statements are in verse 2. Let's look at these first. They are the fact that Jesus is the heir of all things. We talked about that a little bit last week in the introduction. Um, when, when someone is an heir, when I have uh, my heirs are going to be, they will be my children, right? My sons, my daughters. There's a familial relationship and in, in in the case with my kids there's a there's a genetic a blood relationship and those kids are mine and when i die that you know the way that it works that um what i have will be theirs they're the heir they're the recipients of of of, of all that that god has literally given to me and they will become stewards over that and so that jesus is the heir of all things all things and this goes hand in hand with it in the very first part of this chapter, of, of chapter 1, verse 2. He's the creator of all things. Those are the first two statements of, this, of the seven. The remaining five are all in verse 3. Look there where we were told that Jesus, 
In addition to being there in the creator, he is the brightness of the glory of God. He is the expressed image of God. Furthermore, he upholds all things by the power of his words. Again, this speaks to, um, in addition to being the creator, he's the sustainer. He's the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. We talked about it last week. He's the author of our salvation, our eternal salvation. And then also, in addition to being the author, he's the sustainer of our salvation. You know, it's this idea of being the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Everything there is in him. Um, he's being, he, so he's the, he upholds all things simply by the power of his words. We know that, that when, when God um, created, he did so also with the power of his word. Same kind of idea that he has ultimately, it says at the end of verse 3, has purged our sin. That's the sixth statement. And then lastly, the seventh, that having done this, having purged our sin, he is seated now at the right hand of God, which means ultimately, right, that all things are complete in him. Complete in him. And I need to point out that these seven statements are the introductory outline that will carry us through the next 10 chapters of this book. If you remember in the introduction, I said that the book of Hebrews can simply be divided into two sections. Starting in chapter 1, going on to chapter 10 to verse 18, we have the doctrinal part of it. This is the teaching part of it. And, and, and these seven statements are carried through this first section, chapters 10 on through verse 18. And then the second chapter is the application. So every point that is being made in the next 10 chapters is built upon these seven foundational truths that are found in verses 2 and 3. It sets the stage for everything else that is to come. But let's make sure that we look at them in the context of what is being declared here in verse 1 in the first part of verse 2. Why are we being told this? Because we're being told a Jesus who is superior is ultimately the better way to have revealed God's message. Jesus who is superior is the better way to have had God's message revealed to us, to all of mankind. So with that in mind, verse 1 says that God in various time and in various ways has spoken, previously spoken, to those who came before us through the prophets. So there's a shift. There's a change. There's something different. In other words, God, since the beginning time, we can deduct from this that he's always been speaking to mankind, to, to us whom he's created. The creator from the very beginning is desired to have fellowship with us, to know, with, to know us, to speak to us, to be in, in, in koinonia, the Bible says, fellowship with us to communicate to us. And, 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 and at those many times since the beginning, and in those many ways that God has communicated, previous to what we're being told here, He has spoken or He has communicated through certain men and women called prophets who had the privilege of hearing from God and then the responsibility of taking what they had heard from God and communicating it to those whom God wished to speak to. For example, when we look at the Old Testament, we see that, that God in Exodus chapter 3 spoke to Moses by a burning bush, right? Moses looked off. He was in the field taking care of his sheep. He saw a bush that was burning, but yet it was not being consumed. And there was the voice, the voice of God coming out of this burning bush when he was there. 
That's a various way at a various time. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God, we know, spoke to Elisha, the great prophet Elisha, through a still, small voice. In Isaiah chapter 6, God spoke to Isaiah by a heavenly vision. Remember, Isaiah said, in the days of Uzziah, I saw the Lord lifted up, enthroned. It's a cool passage of Scripture. You should go read that. But God spoke to Isaiah through this vision. In Hosea chapter 1, God spoke to Hosea by a family crisis. There was circumstances going on in his life, and God was using that to speak to Hosea by way of example, his own personal encounter with some real-life things that God was using as an illustration of what was going on with the nation of Israel and what God, how God wanted to have relationship with them and what he was having Hosea to do and what God was doing with his people. And then another example, I've just chosen a few here, in Amos chapter 8, verse 1, I always think this is a little strange, but God spoke to Amos by a basket of fruit. And you may think, yeah, sometimes God uses baskets of fruit to talk to me too. They're called my relatives. <laughs> By these few examples, we can see that even though, right, even though there has been different ways, at, at, at various times, different times that God has communicated, what I want you to know that there's not been various messages. In other words, the message has always been the same. The message has always been the same. The same since the very first message that was spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we are told that Adam and Eve at this point had hid themselves from God. This was a new thing. God would come to Adam and Eve while they were in the garden, and He would walk with them in the cool of the day, it said. They had, God had fellowship with them. God hung out with them. God spent time with them. They walked together. And yet this time God comes and Adam and Eve are hiding themselves from God. So when God came to the garden like He had previously done, He calls out to Adam and to Eve and asked, where are you? Where are you at? Why are you hiding yourselves from me? And as you know, they were not hiding because they were playing some kind of game of hide and seek with God. Adam and Eve were hiding because they had disobeyed God, right? They had disobeyed God. They had eaten from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when Adam heard God's voice calling out and searching for him, he responded and he said, here I am. I heard your voice and I hid myself because I was afraid. And God asked down Adam, why? Why are you afraid? Adam, have you disobeyed? Have you, have you eaten from the forbidden tree? And, and of course, God knew all these things. God knew where Adam, where Adam was at. God knew that Adam had eaten from the tree. He knew that Adam was ashamed. It says that his nakedness had been revealed. And this, when God confronted him, this is when Adam confessed that he had disobeyed, even though he was quick to blame his wife, right? His wife Eve for making sure, by making sure to point out that she was the one who had given him the fruit to eat, that she had eaten it and then brought it to him. And at this point, 
when we, when we understand the context of the story, at this point we might assume or we might expect that God would have continued to speak a judgment against Adam and Eve, right? And tell of the awful ways in which they were now going to experience death. Considering God had previously warned Adam and Eve, said of all the garden you may eat, but of this tree you cannot, you shall not. When you do, if you do, you will surely die. But hear this, this is not the message. This is not the message that God came with at this time. It's not the message that God communicated. In fact, what we see is that God called out to Adam and Eve, who were ineffectively still trying to hide themselves from him, and basically said, come to me, I will forgive you. I will prepare a sacrifice to cover your nakedness. And we know that was what God did then with the lambskin, and he says, we'll, I will do this because God desired to be in fellowship with him. He said, come to me, I'll forgive you, I will prepare a sacrifice for you so that we might walk together once again. And what we need to know that this message is the same message that God in many times, in many ways, has graciously and lovingly spoke to mankind. It's at the heart of everything that we read that the prophet spoke to the people. It's the same message that God speaks to us today. Where are you? He says. Where are you? Are you listening? I know that you've sinned. Repent. Turn to me. I will restore you. Accept my sacrifice that I prepared for you. And walk again with me. God says, I still love you. I want you to live. I don't want you to die. The point is that God, down through time, has been faithful. Think about this. He's been faithful to every generation, down through time. Faithful to every individual person on the whole face of the earth as He has communicated this same message of His love for us even though we have rebelled and turned away. And this is because the Almighty God who created us, He is long-suffering. The Bible says he is merciful and he desires to have relationship with us. But in order to communicate this message in a better way, in, able to, in order to communicate this message in a better way, in these last days, God has sent his own son who not only came to tell us about the love of God, we know this, but he also came to show us the love of God. Not just to tell us that God loves us, but to show us that God loves us. And in doing so, we know as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark that, that Jesus demonstrated with the sacrifice of His own sinless life the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, even while, the Bible says, like we, like Adam and Eve, even while we are still were, are in the midst of our sins and while we were trying to hide ourselves from God. Romans 5, verse 8, you guys know the verse, says God demonstrated His own love to us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So in light of what we conclude, as verse 2 points out, or begins to point out, that in these last days, there's a better messenger. Jesus, the Son of God, better than the prophets. He has been sent. And then the reasons for why Jesus is a better messenger are given 
And they ultimately point us to the person of Jesus Christ, right? To the fact that Jesus is no ordinary man. That He is more than a man. Saying first here that He is the heir of all things. He's not the heir of some things. He's not the descendant of any earthly being in that He's to inherit only an earthly inheritance. He's the heir because He's the Son of God of all things. The heir of all things. Which presents the idea ultimately that Jesus is preeminent. What does that mean? He's unsurpassed. He's the most excellent. He stands forever as the firstborn over all of creation. And this truth is detailed for us in the first chapter of Colossians. And it's summed up by the Apostle Paul when he writes in chapter 1, verses 15-16, through 16, speaking of Jesus, he says He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. The error. They were created for Him. Through Him and for Him, in addition to being the heir, we are told that Jesus created all things and that He, according to verse 3, then upholds them or sustains all of the things that He simply, or he, that he created simply through the power of His spoken Word. See, not only is He the giver of life, again, He's the sustainer of life. Life is only in Him. Life can only be found in Him. It's the Apostle John who begins his Gospel account by stating, stating these, these same profound truths. I love the Gospel of John. We know that the main theme of the Gospel of John is to convey the message in a clear and concise way as it accounts the life of Jesus Christ that He is God in the flesh. And so John begins in chapter 1, verse 1-4. through four, He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. So God, or excuse me, so Jesus, God's personal messenger... God's personal messenger, Jesus, who came to this earth, took the form of, the man, of a man for these last days that you and I have the blessing of living in. He is the one who spoke the worlds into existence, into being. And now it's His Word that controls and sustains our world. The Creator, the Sustainer, who is sovereign over all. That's where we start in regards to the person of Jesus Christ as for a reason for why or an illustration for His superiority. And so taking these statements about Jesus, we're pointing to the fact that the new messenger given to us in this last days is God Himself. Specifically, the only begotten Son of God. And if these were the only reasons given for why Jesus is the better messenger it would be more than enough. 
But as we read on, we see that there are additional truths in these scriptures that are mentioned to us. Additional truths found in these first verses that reveal the nature and the person of Jesus Christ as we're told ultimately about what he came to do. Not just who he is, but what his mission was. What he came to do at the end of verse 3, which says he purged our sin. He's a better messenger because he came to do a work that we cannot do, right? He purged our sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. In other words, not only did Jesus, the Son of God, bring the message of God. Hear this. This is why he's better. Not only did Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, come to bring us the message of God, he became the message of God. He became the message of God. By what he did for us. And in doing so, Jesus became God's sacrifice for our sins through his death on the cross. And we've been covered by his blood. And ultimately through that brought back into fellowship with God. The message. He is the message. And the fact that he's now, as we read here, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, demonstrates two things to us. Again, a superior thing. A better way. And the first, that is that his work on earth is completed. He is risen into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work here is completed. And as a result, all things are complete in him. In him, things are complete. We are complete. Meaning there's no work left for us to do except to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, whom God the Father has sent. You know, and these two encouraging truths are confirmed in other places in Scripture. The apostles had been walking with Jesus. The disciples had been walking with Jesus for some time. And they, they knew, they didn't quite understand exactly who Jesus was. They had, they had made some professions of faith. They didn't know how it was all working together. It would be later revealed to them. But, but they knew that Jesus was special. And so they wanted to know, what must we do to be right with God? What must, we, what must we do to be accepted by God, to be pleasing to God? And Jesus said to him, and, and this is how they worded it, they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to him, this is the work of God. This is how you please God. This is how you are acceptable to God. He said that you believe in Him whom He sent. You believe in him whom he sent. And furthermore, in regards to the completedness that is in him, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the apostle Paul, by way of warning, says this to the early church. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. I'm not going to share the whole story again because it's a little silly, but have you ever been cheated? Have you ever been deceived? Have you ever had someone snatch something away that was yours and afterwards you're like, I got the wrong end of the deal here? I think we all have experienced that in one way or another, where we've ended up on the wrong side of the, of the, of, of, of the, of the deal, and, and someone has, through their own wisdom or through their own, what they wanted to communicate to us was something better, they've cheated us out of something, or they've lied to us. And Paul writes in regards to spiritual things to the early church, kind of the same message that's brought forth throughout the whole book of Hebrews, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, through the wisdom of the world, ultimately what that means. Not the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of the world. 
an empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, this is what we're not to be cheated or deceived out of, for in Him, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. In other words, don't let anybody deceive us or, or trick us through, their, through their, their, their slick words into believing that there is something for us apart from Jesus Christ, that we need something more or something in addition to Jesus Christ. The church that I grew up in was Catholicism, and they, they teach Jesus, they do. I didn't find him there. I'm not criticizing Catholicism, but there's this sense of being, of adding on. Yes, you've come to Jesus, but now it's up to you to sustain your relationship with him. There's the sacraments and all these other things, and these are additions to Jesus. But it's not of Christ. It's not according to Christ. It's philosophies of men. It's lies. It's empty deceits. Why? Because Jesus is enough. We are complete in Him. He is the head of all principalities and of all powers. And again, if these other reasons stacked on top of the two that Jesus is God in the flesh, if they're the only reasons given for why Jesus is the better messenger, then they would be more than enough. These are sufficient reasons. But it's not all there are. There is. There are two more additional reasons given in verse 3 where we are told that Jesus is the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person. Meaning this. Not only did Jesus bring the message, not only did Jesus become the message, He also makes known to us the very nature of God, the one from whom the message has come. Now, now, what good is a message if you don't know the one who's giving the message? The one who could give, be giving the message could be a liar, right? He could be a trickster. He could be an unfaithful person. He could have an ulterior motive. The message is only as good as the one who has given it. The word is only good as the one who's spoken the word. If there's a promise that's to be made, which we know is part of the message, it's only good if the one who's made the promise is one who keeps his promises. Right? And so Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and by him we know the very nature of God, the one who the message has come from. In other words, it's through our knowledge of Jesus Christ that we see God and that we come to know that He is a promise keeper, that He is a faithful God, that He's a loving God, that He's a merciful God, and the message that He's given us lines up with who He is in person and character. And we know that through Jesus. The Greek word expressed here, is verse three, here in verse 3 is this Greek word charakter. And this word was used um, in ancient coin making, this particular word, to describe the process of how the metal would be, the molten metal, the silver or the gold would be poured into a mold, right? Or how it would be stamped so that the exact image, the expressed image, the exact image from the mold or the stamp would then be embedded into the coin that was being produced. And so while all other messengers that have ever come before Jesus can only describe in limited detail who and what God is like, 
Jesus, because he is God, the Son with the nature and the attributes of God, is not limited when it comes to his ability to make God known to us. Think about it. This was something that Moses struggled with, right? So here's the scene as I see it. Moses is tending his sheep. He sees a flame off in the distance. He notices it's a bush that's burning, but it's not burning. And Moses goes, there's something unusual here. He's a, he's a wise guy. And so he goes over there. He hears a voice says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Now Moses is afraid. He realizes there's something going on. And God's speaking to him. And God's saying, hey, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. And I'm going to use you to set my people free. And Moses is like, this is a good idea, except I don't want to be the one to do it. Send someone else. Sounds like us, right? God, that's a really good idea. There's a need. Uh, send uh, Ian, not me. <laughs> but then, then Moses comes to the real heart of it. Once God and him work it out, he says, he says, who should I say has sent me? How do I make you known to them? Do I say, well, the burning bush sent me. They're going to think I'm crazy. Right? This message, this great message of you're my people and I'm going to deliver you and bring you into this promised land. All these things that God was going to do for the children of Israel through Moses. And yet, here comes Moses and he says, who do I say that you are to them? How do I make you known to them? What do I tell them? And we know that's when that famous passage of Scripture, God says to Moses, he says, tell them this, I am who I am, right? I am, he says. And it was sufficient at the time, but we see Moses' inability to make God known to the Hebrew people. He's an ineffective messenger in that sense. How do we trust the message? Tell him I am. And there's a lot of faith involved in that. And we know that there was miracles that transpired. And the Hebrew people came to know God through those miracles, through those plagues and all that took place. And they came to know God. As a matter of fact, God's desire for that was not only so His people would come to know Him who had been in bondage in Egyptian slavery for all of those years, but God desired for Pharaoh to know Him as well. And He did. He came to know Him. He just rejected Him. It's a whole different... This whole different a different message. But think about it. A finite human being, you and I, we have such a hard time ourselves making God, describing God, telling people about God because he's, a, he's, an, infinite, he's an infinite being. And He's not like us. And we are finite. And yet there's, there's, a, better, there's a better messenger. A better messenger. And through our knowledge of Jesus, we see God and come to know God. In fact, Jesus had said as much. Philip, one of the uh, apostles, one of the uh, disciples and apostles of Jesus, uh, during those three and a half years that Jesus had been with them, um, um, Philip gets this idea of like, Jesus, why don't you show us, why don't you show us God the Father? Why don't, you, why don't you make Him known to us? That'd be a good thing, Jesus. In John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11, Philip asked, saying, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Well, well for, yeah, show me God, and we'll believe you. That's, worth, that's sufficient. That's, that's, think about that request. Just show us God. Not, not, hey, by the way, I know you've healed people. I know you've made the lame to walk and the blind to see. 
you know, that's all kind of good, Jesus. And this is one of his disciples, and he's all, how about one more thing? Can you just show us God? Jesus said to him this, have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? Maybe we should insert our own name there. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. In other words, believe me. He says, it is not my words. It's not my testimony. But the Father who dwells in me. And and he testifies what Jesus says. The authority and the words that I speak are true because he does the work. The Father who dwells in me does the work. Jesus is referring to the things and the ministry and the things that he did while he's here. He says, so believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works for themselves. He said, Philip, you can take my word for it, which you should, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that, that I am God in the flesh. When you've seen me, you've seen God the Father, he said, or if you need something more, look at the miracles that I've just performed, the works that I've done before you. And so because Jesus is God in the flesh, guys, we can rightly conclude that he is the exact image and character as God the Father. And so not only do we have a better message, we have Jesus who's become the messenger, we have Jesus that is God in the flesh, has revealed to us the very nature and person of God, the one who has spoken the message. And while Jesus walked the earth, he demonstrated his likeness his God-likeness in that He was these three things. He was all-knowing. Jesus is all-powerful. And Jesus, even though He was constrained to a physical body, it was clear that He in some way, in some fashion, it's mind-blowing, was still able to be at all places at all times. And I point these things out because it's important for us to know these things about Jesus because these three attributes alone are attributes that God possesses. And there are examples of these attributes for us in the Gospel of John. The fact that Jesus is omniscient, all-knowing. In John chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, it's the story of Jesus when he went into Samaria. He had the encounter with the woman at the well. You remember that? And they were talking about religious things, and she perceived from her perspective, Jesus was talking about salvation. And once she perceived it, she started to talk about Mount Moriah and all these other things. And... and um, he reveals himself to her and Jesus says to her, he says, he says, go and call your husband. Tell him to come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, right, because he's all-knowing, he said, well, you said, well, I have no husband, for you have five husbands. You have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And the woman said this, Sir, I perceive you must be a prophet. It's like, you think? Something something different going on here with this guy who knows all things, who's told me all things. She goes and she bears testimony that, come, and she goes back into the city, come and see the man who has told me all things about myself. How about omnipresent? There are many examples of this in Scripture. I like this one first or best in John chapter 1, verse 48, because it's about Nathaniel. Nathaniel was the skeptic. His, 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 his relative Philip had found Jesus and 
says he's the Messiah, and he comes to Nathaniel and tells him he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's the one who's like, oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That'd be like, can anything good come out of Rockvale or Penrose or <laughs> Canyon City from the rest of Colorado? They might think that about us, right? And, and yet when Jesus meets Nathaniel, he calls him by name, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said to him in John chapter 1, verse 48, he says, how do you know me? How do you know me? Well, we already established that Jesus knows all things. That's part, he's God in the flesh. But Jesus also answered and said to him, listen, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw, I saw you. And by the way, that is kind of funny that Jesus mentions that because that's when Nathaniel was like, Jesus, the Messiah, this guy from Nazareth? Yeah, right. Anything good come out of Nazareth? And of course, we know that Nathaniel becomes, he's impressed and he's humbled and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. All places at all times. How about omnipotent, all powerful? And listen, even though Jesus, all throughout his ministry, we see that his miracles testify to the endless, to his endless power, to this, this, the, and the greatest demonstration of this is evident by the fact that Jesus predicted his own death or resurrection and then fulfilled it. That's, that's pretty powerful. And in John chapter 10, Jesus states this in relationship that speaks to his omnipotence in relationship to his own death and resurrection. He says, therefore, in verse 17, therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have, he says, the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I've received from my Father. And so these three examples of these attributes of Jesus Christ, again, illustrate the fact that he's God in the flesh. But there are other things to look at as well. Really quickly, Jesus claimed to be God in some of the ways that we know that is he accepted worship while he was here on this earth. Even the angels, when they would manifest themselves to men, we know that they would be terrified and they'd be down and worship and like, don't worship me, don't do that, you're going to get me in trouble here. God alone is to be worshipped. Well, Jesus accepted worship. Jesus laid claim to that statement that was spoken to Moses about the person of God when he said, I am. Jesus said also, I am. The ego imai without beginning to the vanishing point. Jesus had power over creation as demonstrated by turning water into wine, by calming the winds and the sea, and ultimately walking on water. All of creation which He created and sustained by the power of His Word is in subjection to Him. Jesus demonstrated power over sin through the healing of the lepers. He also openly claimed to have the authority to forgive sin and proved it through a miracle. Jesus demonstrated power over death by raising Lazarus to life, the daughter of Jairus, the widow's son, and then ultimately his own life. If the worship team wants to come back up, we're going to end with this. Next week we'll get into chapter 4, or <laughs> verse 4. We won't get into chapter 4 for a little while. So God in these last days has spoken to us in a better way. Do you get the point? <laughs> right? Right? Through His Son Jesus, the Creator, 
the brightness of God's glory, the expressed image of God the Father, who is the sustainer of all things. He's the purifier as He's purged our sins with His own blood, His own sacrifice, who is now ruling at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And I'm here to tell you today, even for our lives, as we look at this and see how it relates and how it applies, for these reasons, guys, Jesus is superior. He's superior. And now that this foundation has been established, this foundation of the superiority of Jesus has been firmly established, the author for us, he, the letter will shift and shift here. The, he'll, 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 he'll shift gears in verse 4 and he'll enter into this doctrinal discussion that will carry us all the way through, through verse 10. And in doing so, what takes place now simply with the doctrine is, is we begin to have details of exactly to what Jesus is superior to. And he's going to lay it out and he's going to break it down. And I would challenge you in your own life, in our own lives, to look. Think about the things that we think about, that we set our minds on. Think about the emotions that are rooted in our hearts. And see what they're attached to. See what they're fixed on because it may be an evidence to us that we've placed something or someone in the position of superior that is the place that only Jesus deserves to be. Father, thank you for this time together. And as we worship you with this last song, Lord, we're reminded that you're a good, good God. That you've done a wonderful work for us. That there is no better way to you to know you Lord, to receive the promises to be saved from this life and the corruption that has come in as a result of our own sin and wickedness and rebellion. Lord, thank you again for showing us just how merciful and gracious you are. We love you and we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.